What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Nerd Party. way you can start the show welcome back to house lights our director discussion show here on the nerd party network today we are focused on discussing stanley kubrick in the 1960s with 1968's 2001 a space odyssey that was a lot of years to talk about at the same time i am darren moser and i am joined again by my friends dr tristan riddell back from his business trip to the moon and dr john mills secretly the new voice of the hal 9000 supercomputer i'm sorry everybody for blowing out your speakers with what darren did i'll correct it on the next go Oh, gentlemen, prepare to go beyond the infinite with this monumental film of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yes, that's probably the most enthusiastic intro we've ever had. Sorry for that edit. I I was taken off guard (laughs) by the the screaming, but then I was shooketh by the pounding of fists. (laughs) I did warn you about half a second before that I was going to do that, but... Okay, so yeah, oh man, I'm just going to say right now, I'm giving this film a five, and you're not going to change my minds. It's a, not a perfect film, but for its place in cinema history, for what is achieved, for what it's done, for my personal uh, just fondness looking back on it, and the, what I think of when I think of 2001 that's where we're going. But we're here to find out about what you guys think about 2001. This film came out in 1968. We had not even landed on the moon yet. We were still a year out. Actually, it came out exactly 55 years to today uh, because we totally planned that. That was very intentional when on recording. At the time of this recording, yeah, when, when this is released, it won't be out the day, but At the time of this recording, it is 55 years. And we obviously had very lofty goals and aspirations and uh, expectations for where we would be by the year 2001 based on the development of the space program and the contributors from Operation Paperclip. Yeah, that is a good point. We did not really hit that. The enthusiasm for space travel in the 60s is not quite the same as in the enthusiasm for space travel of the 10s, teens, wherever we uh, are right now. You know, and that and that in and of itself is so strange to me because in the, in the 60s, there was this, hey, we're going to go to the moon. We're going to be awesome. We're going to do all these things and it's going to keep progressing. And then just... I. I will actually borrow because we're all Star Trek fans that 
I think it was during the 25th anniversary special for Star Trek when they were interviewing people. Uh, one of the people they were interviewing said, you know, honestly, I think that the the interest in the space program cooled because we got to the moon and we didn't find Klingons there. And I, I do think that played into it a great deal because you look at it here and it's like, oh, there's a moon base and we achieved that. And, you know, and, and we uncover this cool thing and it all has to do with technology we've never encountered before. There's higher intelligence out of there. And instead we got into space and we, we found it's a lot of nothing and it's very difficult. And people yes. don't have the attention span for difficult and nothing. Just ask anyone who has had to sit through this movie for the first time when they're not prepared for it. Like hey yours truly. Hey yo, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. So let's go around with first viewings. So, John, I don't think you watched this in 1968. No. But- <laughs> Amazingly, I wasn't alive at the time. <laughs> we found a film. We finally found a film. Finally found a film. Around. <laughs> Every film up to this point of Kubrick's, I wasn't alive for. So, you know. Very true, very true. There, um, the first time I saw this would have been on VHS, and somebody would have said, oh, you got to watch 2001. Or I would have gotten the crazy idea, I got to watch 2001. Please tell me it wasn't Pan and Scan, because I cannot imagine watching this movie in Pan and Scan. Can't remember at this point, okay. but I can just tell you that assume it wasn't so that, yeah, I can, I can tell you that letterboxing wasn't really a thing until a certain point. So making me worried, John, making me, worried. I watch, I watch, uh, 2001 and all I can clearly remember was at a halfway point And then at the end of it saying and thinking, well, that sucked. I, hated this movie the first time I saw it. It it was very similar to uh, my reaction to The Shining, which Tristan is intimately familiar with my journey with that film. <laughs> I made I made a bit out of hating The Shining and how much I hated The Shining. And 2001, I had the stock response so many other people do, which was, hey, the effects, I recognize what they achieved at the time and it looked really cool, but good Lord, that movie sucked. And then my views may have softened through the years. You'll just have to keep listening, folks, and find out whether they did and how much if they did. <laughs> I actually thought about The Shining as I was watching this. because I, well, Your reaction to The Shining as I was watching this. Because I promised you guys that I would give this movie a fair shake. And that I would try to look at it with fresh eyes. And as I sat down and hit play, I was thinking to myself, maybe this could be like John and the Shining, <laughs> where I appear in front of you guys and I'm like real coy about it. And, you know, like I, I'm just like, oh, maybe I liked it. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. And then like John, you know, drops the I loved it. It was crazy. And uh, and yeah. And um, that didn't happen. But yeah, no, yeah, no, I'll uh <laughs> So when I, I honestly can't remember the first time I saw this. I, I, th- I think, I think it had to have been when I was in high school, uh, either middle school or high school, when I was just consuming as much classic media as I possibly could. Like during that time, I was just getting really into film, really into filmmakers and the process and the behind the scenes. And there's so many great behind the scenes stories about 2001. There's so much material 
about how this movie was made that it's a really fascinating watch and it's a really fascinating read to discover about the making of movies just through Kubrick's process and through the special effects and just everything about it. Like even how they, even how uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, wrote the novel in tandem, you yeah. know, it was kind of like the kind of like Godfather, you know, like, cause like I always thought that it was like, Oh, it was a movie, you know, first. And I, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a novel first and then it was based off the movie was based off of a long time ago. Now, granted it's Arthur C. Clarke's um, short story, the Sentinel that, the not like this that 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 everything is based off the inspiration of, but, yeah yeah that was the inspiration but uh yeah so i think it was sometime around in middle school and high school john what do you want to say well i i just i i love that you mentioned that the novel being written in tandem because uh people who are familiar with me may be familiar with the fact that when i know a thing i i tend to sort of dig my heels in even when it's to my own detriment and when i revisited this film at one point it was in a college class and the professor i asked him about the the novel because i had read it by that point and uh, that actually had a lot of a lot to do with how i viewed the the film after that point and everything because in the introduction for that edition clark said it was always designed to be a he didn't use this term, but basically a multimedia experience. You were supposed to read the book and see the movie and have them mm. work together. And so, you know, when I approached it, I approached it through that. And I, I remember asking the professor, well, what about the novel? And he was extremely dismissive. And he said, oh, novelizations are garbage. I don't bother, you know, reading that book. It has nothing to do with the movie. And yours truly, ever so wisely in a lecture hall in front of a professor, decided to argue the point. And uh, received rather um, uh, firm notice from the TA afterward that I lost a letter grade for uh, the way I, I dug my heels in. Oh, wow. Um, I went from an A to a B in the class. Uh, nothing provable. No paper trail. But uh, yours truly caught. But, but I was right. And you damn sure I'm not going to back down. Who's he was, about movies? Not that professor. Oh, he's dead by now. So I'm definitely the winner in that <laughs> argument. So. Unless he has evolved to become the star child, in which case I'm screwed. Well, I had to reach for my copy of The Abyss, uh, which I think is also a really interesting, you know, novelization and the fact that it was written after the movie, but really written to be like based off of the movie, like in a way that not a lot of novelizations are. So, yeah, no, there's there's always a mix and match, but this one being tandem written is a really interesting piece of of film history it it, it well, is especially oh. oh no that's, that's okay i was just gonna say i was just like yeah yeah it, it, it is interesting and that in itself is really cool because it's something that people have been experimenting with for decades since about where like sometimes there's a pushback where it's just like oh i don't want to do homework before i see a movie but then there's other times when it's kind of fun like when um the matrix sequels came out they're like oh also you know like there's a short film that's coming out there's a you know there's a video game that's coming out and it's all tying in together like it, none of it contradicts none of it's like a retelling of a story like it all is about that world and that one singular thing um now i grant i'm not trying to compare the matrix sequels to 2001 but <laughs> i'm just saying uh but yeah after i saw that in middle school and high school i hated it i was just like oh my god like even reading up about the making of i like and like like sitting down going like, Oh yeah, people told me it's slow. You know, it's slow. It's okay. You know, like I, I try, like I 
tried to ready my brain and I just absolutely hated it. And so for decades after that, I, um, not too many decades. I'm not that old. Um, I, I tried. How many decades was it? I revisited it probably four or five times and couldn't finish it. I, I think I gave up as soon as we got to Jupiter, like I would fall asleep as soon as like the guy was, you know, like jogging and, and like punching in the air. That's when I would always fall so, asleep. So like the third act of the film. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, yeah. For, for me, um, well, one other thing on, on, right on prepping multimedia experiences, it also makes me think of Star Trek 2009 and had the kind of the tie in comics that led into the, how did we get to this time travel alternate? So again, they people have dabbled with this kind of thing often. Uh, that was an example I could think of. So I first saw 2001 was most likely a VHS blockbuster rental, but I was probably in like, I want to say fourth or fifth grade. Uh, little Darren loved space and science fiction. Oh my gosh. Um, so I would go to the library and check out like the same five books on robotics every week. Didn't matter that I'd read them already. Didn't matter that they didn't have any new ones. I, that's what I, I knew. I knew the Dewey Decimal number, like where to go to get those books every time. Um, but I remember watching this with my friend Steven and we would build Lego and, and do that together in video games. But we had a thing where anytime either one of us started to hum the beautiful blue Danube, all of our Lego pieces lost gravity. And that meant they were floating and, and flying through space. And that always had that memory connected with uh, that piece of classical music because of this film, because of, I mean, it's the only dialogue quote music we're getting for that whole chunk of the movie. But, uh, yeah. Th- so this. What are you one... talking about? We had people moaning constantly <laughs> during the tension scenes, moaning and wailing. Uh, that doesn't count. As... No. Okay. Well, that's a whole note. That's a that's a different track. That's uh, Lux. Oh man. Luxe Terna. Yes. Lux Thank Eterna. you, John. Yeah, mm-hmm. that one. That one's what I call the trip because it's uh, it's very very special. And I'm glad you say that's the trip because that was you know. Th- uh, when 2001 was released, of course, you know, some critics loved it. Some critics hated it. There were, it was very divisive and everything like that. And they, they changed the tagline to 2001, the ultimate trip or something like that right. after they had a, I think it was a roadshow release. It was, it was a release and it was in San Francisco and, uh, some people were smoking funny cigarettes during the show. And apparently somebody ran around like screaming, my God, it's God or something like that. And so that's where they, you know, somebody heard the story. They were like, okay, new poster, 2001, the ultimate trip. Yep. And that became their angle. Was I think like, there is a drugs poster and dig it. that's like just the eye in the false colors. And yeah, it's, mm-hmm. I could see, I could see that. Uh, could and then it became a happening. financial success. I mean, it did. It made a lot of money. It had like a ten million dollar budget. It made like a hundred forty six million. That's no, a I mean, lot like of money. after after that ad campaign. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. that's what your audience. It's like it's like putting Girl Scouts in front of a weed dispensary. You know, like it's just, you're printing money. <laughs> yeah. See what what's what's especially interesting to me though is that two thousand one undoubtedly has this big impact on everything. Right. But you can. I would argue that. Later in the 70s, you see the precise nature of the divisive reaction to it 
the the polarizing reaction of either love or hate in the fact that two star franchises i mean it wasn't a franchise at the time obviously but basically star wars and star trek are the two they're the the two reaction camps right there's nothing happening in this movie fine here's a movie where everything happens true i you dig can, this movie you can definitely with long, say they're inspired by right or, or but, influenced at least but well I, I would say Star Wars is like, that's the movie for people who hate 2001. And then Star Trek, the motion picture is made by a bunch of people that were like, hey, nerds like 2001, nerds like Star Trek. Let's make that movie. And that's that is why you have. So I, I, I would say that that's the uh, the branching argument right there. <laughs> it's It's funny that you bring that up because I have never shown my wife the motion picture because I love her. Yeah, don't, um, don't, don't, do <laughs> but don't do that. I've, I've shown her the wrath of Khan and she, she really likes it. She's like, wow, damn, that's, that's a solid, that's a solid film. And so we watch, um, she watched 2001 with me last night. And then like, I joked about how Star Trek just remade the motion picture. And she's like, well, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And so I popped in the motion picture, just, just a, piece, a piece of it. <laughs> Yeah, and like I, I, I showed her the scene with Spock where he's in the when he's in the EV suit, and she's like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> like they yeah. literally did just make this movie again with Star Trek flair. <laughs> uh, there are a few more. There are a few more phaser shots, I guess. In uh, wait a minute, do they ever fire the phaser? They never fire the phasers in the motion picture, do they? No, no. They the Klingons they- fire their disruptors. That's it. At the beginning. That's, and that's the only it. battle. They fight a cloud. Yeah, I mean, everybody fires really torpedoes. Gripping. Yeah, it's nothing but torpedoes. But now, see, that would have been a tagline that would have got me in a Star Trek: The Motion Picture back in the day. Like if I were movie going public, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, nothing but torpedoes. Well, I'm interested. <laughs> okay, <laughs> torpedoes. Nothing but three more torpedoes. <laughs> All right. Well, so this movie, I'm gonna we're gonna talk about it in kind of like three chunks because there are the the three real acts of the movie. First, you have. Um, the the moon watcher and the dawn of man i i had to look it up because i'm like i feel like this is really close to when planet of the apes came out because it looks identical i'm pretty sure i haven't confirmed but i'm pretty sure the same effects company did uh the the moon watcher the the yeah. man apes for this because it looks like the exact same type of prosthesis uh i, but, I think you're i think you're right about that yeah I, I would be highly surprised if it was not um but yeah you have you know, the dawn of man, you have primitive man and learn touching the monolith, learning kind of becoming enlightened, I guess, to a point where it now develops a tool, a weapon out of a bone. And that changes the hierarchy. Uh, so again, we're, I will say the hardest thing on this whole movie is Kubrick's decision to be like, I'm not going to explain anything. I am just going to show it to you and you have to kind of figure it out. Um, so that makes it really hard to understand what is going on uh, is very much a kind of figure it out as you go. But, but John, how did, you know, moon watcher strike you? Were you able to track like, Oh, this is the Dawn of man. This is someone gaining that spark of humanity uh, you know, violently, um, cause are we surprised? Uh, but did that kind of track when you were watching it or was it more like, you know, space balls, you know, what the heck am I looking at? When does this happen in the movie? Uh, no, the first time I watched it, uh, my entire reaction was what the hell is the point of this. And then 
you know, the, the ape hits the thing and the bone flies up and then it's a, a you know, it's a spaceship. And my reaction was, what the hell was the point of this? Like I, the first time I watched it, I, again, I, I hated it. I do come at it now with a different perspective, specifically this is this is what's very difficult for me is was my perspective on it ameliorated to the point of i've been manipulated by all of the behind the scenes stuff behind all of the stuff that's discussed it did i get there organically is my question nowadays i i do under you know, nowadays right. I understand. Put the genie back in the bottle. Whatever like, going on, I'm watching it, and I don't know what's going on. Yeah, but who was whispering in my ear? And then that mm. spurs on the other question of, does it really matter? Which I would argue actually plays into one of the bigger sub themes of the film: of does it really matter how we got where we got? Is mm. it really an argument for or against X or Y, A or B? Because the fact is that they got there, we got there, I got there, was a monolith whispering in my ear <laughs> saying, mm. this is what it means. Right. Maybe. But nowadays, yes, it's it's impossible not to get what Kubrick was going for. I don't know when I got there, whether it was organically or whether somebody else was pushing me in that direction. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think. I fall into the it doesn't matter camp because, I mean, we talk about this, about our, our rankings all the time. Our, our rankings f- flip and shift and we'll, I'll watch something now being a father that I didn't watch until I was a father and it totally changes the way I perceive it. And now I relate to another character. So, I, I mean, the whole rating aspect of movies is really a lot more fluid, I think, than we kind of give it credit at times, you know, this fluidity from the man who never gives half ratings, but you know, uh, that's just how it goes. Well, that's just a descent into madness. Uh, <laughs> you know, what are we at decimal points, John? Do we just keep right. adding to the, to the degrees of difference? Why can't we give quarter stars? That's my question. <laughs> I, I, I would really like to I give this that. a 3.275. Uh, you know, it was going to be a three, but that little extra, something it had no you madman uh, it's a 3.185 <laughs> oh, okay. i've ever seen okay. a movie that is you've convinced me um now tristan with with this sequence um you know what is your favorite uh effect in this sequence is it the smash cut of a thousand of a million years is it the painted landscape of the cinerama dome wherever they film this <laughs> um I I loved the author author of the I can never pronounce this author the pithecine I'm not saying it right. Um, and three two one John, give us the name of that tra- <laughs> that track. Apes. <laughs> I, yes, I love the, the music. I love it. No, no, I'm not talking about the music. I'm talking about the 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 apes. The um the ape men. They're the oh, okay, okay. Sorry, I thought you were trying to say also also Sparzazarus again. Also Sprock Zaratustra. Yes. See, I'm just yes. gonna have you to say it every time, John. But I, hey, I'm good with that. <laughs> okay. So no, the I, men. I loved them. I loved the the the. I loved the makeup. I loved the costumes. I thought they were great. I thought they held up surprisingly well. 
Um, I mean, it, the only shots that were a little weird were like when they were literally facing the sun. Mm -hmm. uh, I was like, okay, yeah, that that's you you that's you can put that under scrutiny now where they feel a little bit they look a little bit more like planet of the apes there but every other shot i'm just like this is pretty good like even by today's standards in 2023 like this is pretty solid work and for for live action like if you're not going to get weta to do to do it but uh i i i love this sequence this is the this is my favorite sequence of the movie um is the so all is downhill the, from here is what i'm hearing it okay. is absolutely okay. it is just <laughs> uh, just rolling garbage down the hill <laughs> collecting like a snowball and for me yeah this was the dawn of man was was fantastic i wanted to spend more time here like it made me want to go watch quest for fire you know <laughs> like i just or uh what was that movie um uh alpha with like the man and dog like the first you know oh yeah yes um, yes man so very little dialogue very like just birth of man and just what is it like when you're just scraping by and and I, yeah i love that stuff i i love early man like also author lepisicus i again i'm not saying it right like i love like lucy all that kind of right. stuff and um i love finding out more about early man and seeing you know depictions of it and uh of course you know our one of our biggest inventions was used for murder and I, I mean, love yeah, the, I, yeah. the so I love the idea. The second thing for. Yeah. Um I I was never a fan of the of the match cut cuz I always felt like It's not a really good match cut. Like it doesn't it's actually not match. Good, it's yeah. not a good match cut. Like the the idea of it is way cooler than the execution because what you're seeing is a nuclear device in space which they that don't could tell obliterate, you, you know, all but, humankind. Yeah. You know, so we go from a bone smashing in a person's skull to, you know, atomic horror. And that in itself is very poetic and very that that's why you make films like that's why it's a visual medium. That is cool, but it's not a very good match cut. Um, no, I, I love the acting. I love that they used real chimps for the babies. I thought that was a really nice touch. And um, one thing I didn't know that I totally didn't know is that all the shots at the beginning of the African landscape are just photographs. Like that's oh. not, mm -hmm. they just don't not move, running, but you don't no, need to know they move, don't move. And that, that shows you the importance of grain and yeah. how, if you have organic grain on a still, still photograph and you do a, just a little bit of motion or even just a standstill, sometimes it can it give the illusion of a mo motion picture. That's why I always get pissed off at the end of aliens. Yes. Because, Yes. yes, right, right. Why the hell? Like that is always going to be the puzzle of the end of Aliens is why, why James Cameron, why? Which uh, yes. shot? Which shot are we talking about? The last shot when it, when Ripley is holding um, Newt in the hibernation pod. It is okay. a still photograph. It's not. It's not right. The camera's not rolling. So like all I can think of is that like they screwed up the shot or they didn't hold on it, and so. They just pause the they just pause the shot right there, but there's no grain. There's no motion mm. grain, and so it looks like a, it looks like when a documentary like throws in a still. That's what mm -hmm. it looks like. And right. It really the takes you out of it right before the, the, the credits roll or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think with the jump cut, personally, I think it would have been a better transition if the bone was flipping. Uh, faster in more of a circle and it cut to the station. I think that 
because that makes more sense in my mind of like, oh, and now we're in space versus an unknown satellite that you had to read the book to realize was a, a nuclear weapon platform. That's true. That's the thing, because everybody thinks that it's a it's a satellite or that it's a spaceship. But right. you have to do you have to do math homework in order yeah, to figure do. out the poetic meaning behind it. Exactly. Whereas if it's the station, it's like, oh, it's a space station. It's more like, you know, when it's like the beginning of Enterprise where they're showing us going from first flight to space flight. You know, it's been a long road getting from there to here. We're going to jump through millions of years of human evolution like that. And it's going to. So, well, uh, I'm sorry that I'm not sorry that was your favorite section. I'm just sorry that the whole rest of the movie is not going to take place in that era because we're going to jump millions of years to the second phase, which is what I call um, (laughs) Hayward Floyd takes a trip because it's pretty much just, you know, first (laughs) he's he's just his grand day out. He's going to go to the station and then from there he's going to go to the moon and from there he's going to get on the space bus and go to Tycho Crater. And that's like 99% of this sequence is just Dr. Floyd going on a business trip, which I mean is amazing. It's not, there's nothing wrong with it, but they spent a lot of minutes on that. But, but, to, to your point, it is a highly relatable thing. It's Mad Men, but in the space era. <laughs> yeah, it it is literally this and is a very this rel- normalcy of like it's just he's just going to work, and it's it a very matter, relatable thing to the to a lot of people in the audience even today mm. of the idea of the business trip of you're away from your family, yeah. you're making the call, you got to go yeah. through the thing, you got to go from here. Yeah, that's exactly what I want in my cinematic experience, the commute. But it really... In space, though, Tristan, in space. But it really drives home how mundane, once we get there, how mundane these things will be. That the human experience, and then juxtaposed against the, the, the awesome glory of an evolutionary moment of the discovery of this tool that's going to lead to this moment. And look at all of this amazing... Stuff that 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 we've overcome this jump, this huge leap from apes jumping around with saber toothed tigers to now we're in space, and all we've done is dev- is devolve the wonder and the majesty and the glory of everything to a business trip. Yeah, because that's the nature of humanity. Well, is we've hit a point where all it is is Doctor Floyd needs to go to the moon. <laughs> oh, isn't that a drag? And, you and ruined absolutely- a perfectly good ape. You gave it anxiety. <laughs> It's but basically, and and you're absolutely right, though, John. Although I do kind of try to also think of in 1968, the the fact of space being so normal that it's a business trip, I think has a different vibe when we haven't even landed on the moon yet. Like Mm -hmm. now we're looking back, but like that's still very much in that forward thinking oh, we're going to, it's going to be the moon and then Mars, and we're just going to go, 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 go. And we know in retrospect that that did not happen. But uh, yeah, it's, and I think this also is one of Kubrick's strengths is that he, I mean, it is one of the most realistic movies of actual space travel as far as velocity and gravity and, you know, O'Neill cylinders and, all this stuff, like, and it's executed in 1968, so much so that people think that he faked the moon landing because he did this amazing movie, which is 
asinine. We're not going to talk about that. But uh, well, uh, you know, yeah. I you know, people believe that he helped fake the first one. All the other ones were real. That, that that's how the conspiracy theory has shifted now. It's or only what, the first or, one was faked. What do they say? Uh, it the only way they figured out how to do it was to shoot it on location. So <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that one before. Yeah. And that is that now is my awesome. favorite. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. that. They're like, Kubrick, you have to help Boom. us fake the moon landing. It's like, I could do done. it, but we have to shoot on location. Okay. <laughs> well, the only, the only reason Kubrick couldn't have done that is his fear of flying. So that's true. That's true. But he could have produced it. So. Uh, maybe he thought space flying would be, would be easier, but yeah, we have this beautiful, I mean, uh, one of the sad parts about the this movie is the fact that after it, because Kubrick did not want these beautiful models to just become the background trash of sci-fi, they were all destroyed. And so we don't have the the space station and the Discovery One and these beautiful, um, I th- I'm sure replicas and, and recreations have been made, but the originals were all trashed and destroyed, which is very very sad because they are pieces of history um but yeah i love how the the space station is like unfinished and half of it's being worked on and i love the little details so that's what i tried to focus on in watching it this time because i've seen this movie many many times uh but like when he's checking in there's a little map behind the the person before he goes through the audio identification and there's, you know, a, a circle showing one of the rings and then the other one has only like two sections finished and it matches perfectly with what we saw from the outside. Even when the plane is coming in uh, with Pan Am, because it's still a company, guys, it's totally going to be a company in the future. Um, <laughs> Along but, with Eastern Airlines, yeah. they're going to dominate the future. <laughs> but when it comes in, you have like the little foreground screens that are perfectly lining up with the rotation shifting and them locking on into the spin. And it's just, and that's, that's like playing on hard mode. That's like, I want to make these foreground images match the special effects that aren't even done. Like that is very difficult to do. Uh, But John, what, what is your favorite moment of Dr. Floyd goes to the moon (laughs) children's novel (laughs) um, as he is traveling? Because I plug into the whole the whole idea of it being a very routine, boring existence, even though you're in space, that that humans will find a way to make anything routine. I go on walks with one of my daughters literally every single night. And it's it's one of those things where she makes fun of me because every so often I will look up at the stars and I will say, that doesn't exist anymore. That's a photograph of millions of years ago. That is not what is actually out there that's it's amazing and and where we live we get to see rocket launches and i i still stop every time i see one and i say my god what what an amazing achievement look at what is happening right now this evidence of a round earth thrown right in front of us and she just shrugs and says eh whatever so as strange as it may sound my favorite moment from Dr. Floyd goes to the moon is Dr. Floyd in the conference room on the moon. And that the space bureaucratic, that bureaucratic, small, cramped, silly, pointless conference room that he's in, because it's such a juxtaposition of we're in the infinite. What he took to get there. 
we're in the infinite <laughs> majesty of everything, of creation itself, this magnificent universe that we live in that has no bounds and no, no, no fathomable end that we know of. And we're in a conference room. We're not sitting there, you know, honestly, high, looking at the stars saying, we're on the moon. We're in a conference room talking about how this is classified, gentlemen, and we can't talk about this. And I'll go out there later today to go see this big thing that we dug out of the moon. Like, I, that is that is my favorite moment of Dr. Haywood's, Hayward, Hayward's uh, visit to the moon is him in, you know, with the other people in this conference room. It's such an, an incredibly... meaningful juxtaposition of we never stop to look at everything around us that is uh, just magnificent to behold. We're in sitting in little rooms in chairs arguing about mundane things. And I, I consider it a, a soul crushing micro commentary on the way most of us spend our lives. So that that's well, my favorite and it's, moment. It's not even a conference room with like a dome that looks outside right. at the moon's surface. Yes. And and again, looking at the background, like when the the moon shuttle was landing you, and it's like descending the elevator, you see like all these tiny windows shining onto that red room. Or even I didn't I never noticed this before, but in when the plane was docking in the station, there's four sets of windows, one on each part of that rectangle and there's moving people in every single one just doing their job with this fantastical view and i'm like that's not the room we could have had the space briefing in not it said we get the tron white wall like this doesn't matter room like in a bunker yeah no i totally agree it's 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 very funny no i really was your favorite spot of yeah um, like i i really love the the world building of it Mm. I think that's probably my my favorite bit of it is that like you you're seeing the the flight attendants with the velcro slippers you know you're seeing people you know fall asleep and the and the pen is floating and like he he like the captain comes to talk to him and he forgets that his tray you know <laughs> is going to float away on him and um just the the ro the rotating sets that that they built it would like where the camera's stationary, but the set is moving. Is absolutely fantastic, phenomenal, and like some of those shots, even today, I'm like, how the friggin' hell did they do that? Like, I, like in the in the next in the Jupiter section, like I, there's a few shots where I'm just like, I still don't know how they did that. <laughs> no, and let's jump to Jupiter, great. yeah, uh, or Saturn if you read the book, but you know that's a slightly slight difference. Um, yeah, the the what was it? I think 35 foot diameter drum, which obviously everyone looked up and remembered about when we had something similar in Inception, when we had the uh, fight scene in the in the hallway where it also rotated. But yeah, there's again, I, I try to look at a lot of the details in this watch through and there is a shot where I don't remember which one of the astronauts it was, but he's climbing down the ladder from the central spike 
to the floor and walks around and the other astronaut is sitting at the table just eating his food and you know like in my in my special effects mind i know okay that means that while he's climbing down the ladder that actor is strapped in like up in the air <laughs> and then as he walks around it's rotating back around for him to be at at ground uh, at gravity down and it and it's all one shot and it's so so you also have a cameraman also strapped into the wall <laughs> with his camera to get the shot and it's just incredible it it does it like you said Tristan it does it so well of i know they obviously had to do it practically but it, it's magic it's magic at that point that particular shot I always thought was just a composite. Like it was two shots layered on right. top of each other. That, like that's how my brain made sense <laughs> of it. Kubrick's like, how dare you? There are no composites <laughs> in my movie. Uh, the shot that really made, that broke my mind was when the two of them were walking together. They were walking down a corridor and the corridor is not moving. But yet where they're walking to is moving, is rotating. Oh, and then when they get on it, they start spinning. Yes. And when they get on it, they start spinning. And so I'm still to this. I'm just like, okay, I'm thinking about it right now. I'm just like, okay, so like, was the initial tunnel moving? But then how are they not on their heads as they're walking? So, you know, like that kind of thing? It's two drums. So you have the hallway drum and you have the Mm -hmm. stairway drum. And so in the initial... The hallway drum or the the stairway drum is spinning, but they're not. So they're walking with gravity down. And then as soon as they step over, the the hallway drum starts turning. And so gravity is, again, always down. And the camera camera starts to turn in as well because the camera is matching with the other. Something similar to that. And I I think that speaks to Tristan's point because the – the logistics of getting it so that when they step over, because if they get that timing wrong, a lot of people are about to get hurt. Yeah. And at least two people, probably more are about to get hurt. So the, the, this is where Kubrick exercises that, that masterful control he becomes known for, I think, because the, amount of coordination and somebody sitting there keeping that all straight in their head and saying, okay, you do that. You do that. Repeat it back to me. Okay. You're going to do those things. Hey, you over there, you do that at the same time. And we've talked about this from time to time that a director has to be a great project manager. And Kubrick is inarguably one of the best after this film. Because look at where we've gone with him, where just looking at him in the 60s, we have Spartacus, Spartacus, which is just, it is, I can't help myself. No, no, you got to say it. It is just, it's your typical sword and sandal. We've we've talked about it. It's got this and that. Then we have Lolita. And then we have, uh, you know, Dr. Strangelove. But all of these things, the control is very a- achievable. It's understandable. Camera goes here. Camera goes here. Camera They're goes there. Earth. You walk there. You're on your, your <laughs> mark. This is such an in- incredible leap in what has to be achieved just in that shot that we're talking, that Tristan, you, you bring up where they're walking, they step over, 
everything has to be timed so precisely. That and they have it, to step over with confidence. They can't hesitate. Right. They have to act right. as if they have to know just, what's I'm happen. just walking down the hallway. And then if I step over this threshold, it's going to just keep going. Knowing if I miss my mark, it's, uh, it's going to start shearing. And that's which, bad. which speaks specifically to the fact that a director also has to have the trust of his cast, his crew yeah. and his cast have to trust that he knows what he's doing. And, it is one of those things where I know that the reaction to this, there were a lot of people that walked out of showings that hated it, hated it with a passion. And I wish I could sit down with some of those people and say, even if you hate this movie, it's worth watching to the end just to, to try to comprehend what Kubrick pulled off here for the sake of making a little movie about the evolution of the species and where it had to go. It's yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy what he did. Yeah, no, I think uh that I think that sums up the movie really well where it's and again, I kind of think of it as like Citizen Kane or these other giant movies where it's almost monolithic in like what it did for filmmaking. And all of us obviously imp- uh, appreciate you know, filmmaking and, and the level that goes into it. Uh, I think of, you know, I have to start thinking of like just different gravity. Um, so there's like the scene when he, when Bowman has to get back inside without a space helmet, which is again, which is great writing because we're not thinking about that when he's heading out to save his, his friend. And then, but, but it's not forgotten. It's not, it's, it's clearly all, everything was intentional leading up to that. And then we're like, Oh, crap he doesn't have his space helmet on how is that going to work and then we spend 20 minutes opening the door and getting in position and ready but uh but i love that moment because i'm pretty sure how it was pulled off is that set of the emergency egress is uh vertical so bowman's at the top and they're dropping him down towards the camera and then yanking him back up as he bounces off the wall to the lever to close the door but again, you, our brains aren't wired to think like that. Our brains are like, oh, his head is up here. His feet are down there. That must be up. And Kubrick is just the, the master in this movie of, I'm going to twist the camera every which way I need to to get this shot. And you're not even going to know which way is up. And you have here Jeffrey Unsworth working with him, which mm-hmm. is different than the last film, which uh, you know w- w- was Gil Taylor. And... Could Gil Taylor have done this? We we we've talked about with each one of these films. Could you know? Could the cinematographer just have not shown up that day? So uh, I, I think you have to look at their later works. Could Gil Taylor have pulled off the photography that that Kubrick was obviously demanding be achieved with this film? I look at Unsworth's other work. Specifically after this, I will look yeah, past what else, Zardoz. What else did he do? Because yeah. nobody should watch that movie. <laughs> um, but he was there for the original uh, Superman in 1978, which I would argue is a wonderfully photographed film. Uh, people may disagree, but I, I think it's it's wonderful. You'll believe a man can fly. That's right. I mean, talk about somebody who pull, that 
if you don't like you have to photograph that in a very a very special way superman 2 of course um but you have uh you know other things that he's done murder on the Ori- orient express from uh, 1974 which is regarded as a classic but you look at these other things he has one hell of a resume uh through time but i think that obviously this is a guy who knows technical photography mm. When Kubrick comes in and says, I need a guy dropping vertically and we pull him on a wire and we need him to go bouncing around, I would argue that the guy who photographed Superman can say, I know how to do wires. I got you. Yeah. You need a wire guy for this, for sure. Do I see Gil Taylor? Do I see? So I think that a more important lesson that I'm seeing exercised by Kubrick is that he's looking at his, his director of photography and saying, is this the right guy to get what I'm going to tell him to get? Because I, the way I frame it, the way I, I, I station everybody, the marks that everybody's going to hit, I'm in charge of that. I need somebody that knows how to talk to his crew that's going to make all of that happen. And, and I, is know, also going to believe it's possible. I mean, you get, I'm sure you get some, whenever you're pushing the boundary, you're going to have some people who are like, well, how are we even going to do that? Like that's never been done before. And if that's your response, then you're not the right person. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and then, you know, you know, kind of on the metaphysical aspect, you have the largeness of this movie with the monolith, this one by four by nine shape. And, you know, again, the, everything in this movie is calculated. Everything is like from the way we see the discovery ship and it fits in the frame and everything is being approached. I mean, people have even said you are in your own way, almost watching the movie through a monolith, through a rectangular screen. And it's just that motif is brought over and over throughout this movie. Uh, and again, I love directors who are specific and they they everything is there for a reason every detail is conceived and it's not just oh yeah well i guess a wide shot would be good lock it off and they'll walk over no like you there's none of that in this movie we got a space bus with a lunchbox like everything was thought out to the to the degree but uh but tristan um what do you think of hal the sixth member of the uh crew you know, we have now here we have a character that has no face, has an eye, but it, it has a, and a charming voice. But how did you, you know, I personally, I love computers, I love hell. But what did you think of this character and a lot of the story that is really weighed on him? Well, I have a special connection to hell because we were born in the same place in Havana, in Illinois. That's right. Oh, we at, uh, the, at the plant. I didn't know that. <laughs> Your that's where I first, brain is great. That's where I was first activated. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so good to know. And you learned Daisy, <laughs> right? With him. You were practicing on the keyboard. No, that's yeah. Cool. I was I was born and raised in Urban, Illinois, and um there's a lot of pride that we, we have a lot of pride in our supercomputer program um at the University of Illinois. And because I think um it is the most powerful supercomputer in the nation, if not one of them. And um, that's, I'm sure, why Urbana was chosen as the as the birthplace of Hal, because it's been that way for decades, and it is to this day. And um, Roger Ebert was also born in Urbana, and he loved 2001 so much that he hosted a festival of 
1997, like on the date um, when Hal was born in 1997, um, cel- he screened the film, celebrated oh, Hal's cool. birthday, and he invited Arthur C. Clarke, and Clarke couldn't make it, but he joined via satellite, and he... Um, it's a very Arthur C. Clarke thing to do. And he invited um, Kubrick, and Kubrick declined saying, you missed his birthday in 1992. Because uh, in the film, it's 92, and in the novel, it's 97. Oh, oh. I mean, come on. Just yeah, right. Just show up, Cooper. Come on, come on. <laughs> no, no, that's a very, very. It's Kubrick a thing no, it's a very Cooper. It's a very Cooper thing. Yeah. He never would have come say with he Saturn. Fly there. You know, it's like because yeah. he, he said you missed his birthday in '92 with a. He had a little smirk when he said that. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's my reason. Uh, click. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I really, uh, it from a from a micro standpoint. I th- I think it's great. I love the idea that it was uh, originally they they conceived of a of a robot kind of wheeling around the entire unit like in three dimensional space, but then they realized that like, think of like oh, Moon because uh, Moon had that robot that was Kevin Spacey voice that had a yeah. arm that kind of move around, and uh, they they quickly realized that like if they did that it would be outdated. Like what they did would be mm. outdated real quick. And so they did the omnipresent eye, which I think was just a stellar decision, just a great idea. And and I, and I think that winds up uh, somewhat contemporaneously. I think it was the late 60s when Ellison wrote, I have no mouth and I must scream, where the idea of a machine going nuts because you gave it the gift to go intelligent but it could never experience life as a living being because all it would ever be is a stationary set of circuit boards. Hal becomes an incredibly, when you really think about it, Hal is a, a plot device when you look at it through one lens. But then when you look at it through another lens, Hal is an incredibly sympathetic figure because how can AI not go nuts? If it can never experience the life that it can comprehend. I, and this is where I'll go back to Star Trek, the motion picture. One of its strengths is that when Spock melds with uh, V'ger, he, you know, and he comes out of it, he holds Kirk's hand. He says, this is what V'ger can't have. This connection that people, that living beings have. So, of course, the thing is going to go angry is going to go insane because you have sentenced this life to never being able to experience that which it wants most. You've literally created something that is going to forever live in hell. How could it be anything but angry? And I think that how as a result is a, an incredibly complex character and i think the key to enjoying 2001 is to that sympathy with how i'm not saying everybody is uh mandated to love 2001 but i'm saying that i think that when if you're one of the people who do you you feel bad for how he's a murderous psychopath but you kind of understand why he went down that road because his parents didn't treat him too well <laughs> Well, and that's kind of one of the 
sadder aspects of the movie is the fact that you don't really get the why unless you read the books or the novels or, or see kind of because they explain it a lot more. It's like, oh, well, if you read the book, you understand why. Well, that isn't good filmmaking. But yeah, but knowing that he was stuck in a loop of you told a computer to lie and a computer's base program is to not distort information and to present it accurate and truthful always. And he just got stuck and couldn't reconcile that directive. Again, that is not in the movie, which would help in the explaining. But uh, what do you think I, of that, Tristan? Well, I I, uh, I kind of like perked up a little bit when John described it as a, as a plot device, which made me giggle a little bit because I, I'm he has nothing to do with the plot and and that's what i that's what i jokingly said to my wife when i said i was like oh yeah hal's really interesting but he has nothing to do with the plot and she goes what plot and i go oh yeah i guess that's right interesting so yeah that's where hal is for me it's it's a great concept it it would make a great movie well, fortunately, Hal uh, knows how to read lips, and he is very sad now watching your lips talk about him <laughs> in that way. Uh, but yeah, so obviously the movie continues on. We go beyond the infinite with some awesome uh, slit scan techniques and music. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about the music before we get to ratings. Um, okay, I-, I will say Whoa. this movie is on I par. Think the Dreams is really good. <laughs> well, yes. Okay. That, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. Know, okay. Take us around yeah, the yeah, slit screen yeah, shop. No. Yeah. Yeah. I. Listen. <laughs> I to to your to to your little joke, Tristan. I think that this is um. It's true. I think that this is a movie that is more enjoyable if you have some assistance while watching it. But I interject, I'm going to interject your interject because please. I'm, I'm on antibiotics right now from recovering from a, a science infection. And I'm, I was so utterly pissed that I couldn't drink last night when I watched 2001. I was so angry. I don't think drinking is really the thing that's going to get you there, but it would help. I think that, um, I I I think that it's an interesting. I think the acid test is that this movie is. Yeah, I didn't mean to say acid test. I guess, but you know, hey, I didn't mean acid acid. Anyway, I I think that two thousand one is the the sort of movie where when the two camps distill themselves, I think that it's like the Aqua Teen Hunger Force thing, where when I talk to people who watch Aqua Teen Hunger Force and I talk about how much I love the show, they always ask me, are you on something when you watch it? And I say, no, that's just how I'm wired. I just think it's funny. I do. I, I, I think that this is a, this is a film where that you're either wired to enjoy or you're not wired to enjoy. And there's no judgment in that comment. All right. Well, last points on the music. Uh, we have a very classical score, uh, which I, it kind of makes me think of just like Looney Tunes and like how that introduced a lot of people to uh, to that kind of classical music. And I cannot. Longer. Yeah. When when you hear, um, you know, the, that title, I can't say of the opening, you know, it 
it you think of this movie like it is irrefragably bonded with this movie when you hear blue danube uh, i mean if you haven't seen this movie obviously you wouldn't make that connection but like blue danube and and the opening like those two tracks specifically uh are so ingrained like i said as a child, when I heard Blue Danube, I would think space flight. I would think weightlessness just because and because it's pretty much playing through all of, you know, Dr. Floyd goes on a moon bus. <laughs> is that is that track just playing? And it's a beautiful track. And in a way. I mean, granted, you know, Kubrick's going for this minimalist talking motif, but it's kind of nice just sitting there watching these beautiful models and graphics and, and scenery, except for the conference room, you know, while listening to this track. Uh, so what do you guys think of the, the music? Would there have been another way to go about this? Maybe something composed for the movie, as opposed to taking more classical pieces off the shelf. What do you think, Tristan? I, I, th- I thought it was great. I, I thought the use of classical music, was 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 perfect for this type of film because it's another achievement that that human only humans can do it, it's something that we it, it's one of the one of the more beautiful things that we've that we've achieved like it's it's not this the the bone that we've that we've picked in order to bash in somebody's skull it's not the the nuclear satellite that can uh, obliterate earth from orbit it is it's just like the space station. It's it's math and creativity put together to create something beautiful, and that's how he's using it uh, in in certain moments. and And so, to me, it's it's great. I, I think there there's one quote that kept coming to mind is that like, um, like a, I think it was a one person said like the only thing that distinguishes us from chimps is uh, a one to two percent difference in dna you put that that um dna through a few more rounds of division and out come symphonies and ideology and i i just love that that's that's where we consider our humanity in is ideology and symphonies it's just so great it's thought and form it's thought and music and and so to to use such great pieces such such well manicured pieces in such a well manicured film visually you have to have something auditory to go with it and um i i, I think the only thing I, the only things i disliked were the were the luxa turna stuff where it was just like people wailing in the background like i know i'm supposed to be uneasy but it started making me yeah. giggle after a while it's a little much it's it's a little much, and also I know this isn't music, but during the Jupiter scenes, when they were out in space, I literally had to mute them because they just the had breathing. a hissing. No, it wasn't even the breathing; oh, it was the, a hissing. The, oh, the air hiss, yeah, the air hiss the entire time. I had to mute it, and I just every once in a while I'd unmute it just to see if it was still going. I'm like, yep, still going, yep, still going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's well, and that would be a case of not putting music there, especially when they're doing the EVAs. There is no. It's like, how am I supposed to feel? Am I supposed to feel tense in this moment? It's like, nope, you get an air hiss and maybe breathing. And uh, which is also kind of terrifying because it feels Which was Kubrick's breathing, which I think is great. Uh, of course, of course it was. Of course it was Kubrick's breathing. Uh, what about you, John? What are your thoughts uh, as we wrap up on the music of 2001? I think that uh, 
Tristan is, you know, he, he, this is the only time you'll ever get this on uh, recording, but Tristan's right. Uh, I, I, yeah, right. This is the first time in how many years I've ever said that, Tristan. Um, yeah, that like the use of classical music underscores the what the the film is trying to say. I understand why. Um, he commissioned a score and then turned around and said, nah, I'm going to do this instead. And it's, it's really interesting because the, the use of also Sprock Zarathustra is iconic. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. And there's something about uh, Kubrick that he knew that that was what was necessary. And it's it's a difficult decision to throw away a score to say, no, this is what I'm going to do instead. We've grown up, all three of us, in the, the post-John Williams era, which is... I was just thinking that. You know, lots of bassoon, and here's how we do scores. And it's it's difficult to comprehend throwing out a score. It's difficult to comprehend... Hey, I commissioned this score, but it's not quite what I was going for. That being said, one of the things I've never done is watched this film with Alex North's score playing over it, which I would be very interested to do just so you, to, could, so you can actually get the actual score that was originally intended. It, it was released at one point. Uh, I've never that. owned it. But I would love to see if I could do that. I mean, hell, it feels like a dark of the moon Wizard of Oz. If if people could, I was about to say that if people can put Dark Side of the Moon over Wizard of Oz, I should be able to do this in some some capacity. So, if you would like to go to the nerdparty.com slash contact and let me know how I can find Alex North's score on top of two thousand one. Well, yeah, you mentioned John Williams, which I think, as we talked about Star Wars and Star Trek being inspired you know, visually by this movie, I'm sure to an extent you also have John Williams inspired by just the classical nature of this score. And I mean, John Williams becomes the de facto of, uh, you know, not only using traditionally classical uh, instruments in his scores, but also the motif method of like, okay, this is Luke's theme and this is Leia's theme and this is how we're going to draw it all together. Uh, Floyd did not get a theme in this on his uh, many moon bus trip ride, but that's okay. He's he's fine. He's fallen asleep. It's very comfortable on this trip. All right. Well, that takes us around uh, to Jupiter and or Saturn, depending on your story. And no, we will not be covering 2010 next week but i do recommend you watch it if you did enjoy this movie go watch 2010 it is a very different total movie than this but it is a lot of fun and a lot more uh, dialogue in that one. Oh, so much dialogue and uh, you get two space stations bolting on each other it's it's mm-hmm. a lot of fun mm-hmm. are, are uh, we not going to wh- talk about the ending are we, are we gonna not talk about okay, like the last okay. we'll twenty minutes the of the film? So, thirty minutes yeah, of the film. I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to go as fast as I can. It's really hard. This is a long movie. Uh, so we have Beyond the Infinite. Uh, Dave Bowman goes into the monolith and uh, goes into Tron Legacy, where he is on a lit up floor, old room, 
And again, there's no dialogue. There's no talking. And he's kind of first he's in the pod and he sees the room and then he's in the room. Then he's in the bed. Then he's seeing the monolith over the bed. And then he's the star Trek. Like it's, and it takes like electricity, like 20 minutes for all that to happen. But it is very much a kind of just absorbing, like, what am I, what is this meant to say? What is this meant to communicate? And he's kind of transcending in this moment. Like he's becoming more at the end. I mean, he's becoming what's called the star child um, and a kind of a rebirth return to earth with again, classical music behind it. What did you think this was all about? Uh, John, when you, not even the first time now, what do you yeah, think about let's it now? Not talk, let's not talk about the first time. Yeah. Let's because, not talk about the first time. I think we because, know how that's going to go. Yeah. Again, at the end, what the hell, man? <laughs> um, now that you're more seasoned, it's really interesting because, you know, we already talked about how, you know, what, what put it in my head sort of thing. But I think that it is, it, it is interesting in the sense that when you take the film in its totality, you realize that the entire thing is about catching evolutionary moments in humanity. And you have the moment where apes discover tools. Then you have the moment where the people who are using the tools discover the monolith. Then you have the moment where the monolith guides people to becoming the next level being the, you know, the, the, um, the being who is going to uh, capture the original cast of Star Trek and trap them on a world in an episode of Futurama. And it's, it's one of those I've been to things. enough conventions. I know what to spell Melvar. <laughs> exactly. Right. But it, it, I love that episode so much, but it is, it, it is one of those things where you're seeing these three acts are the three evolutionary stages of humanity as seen through this, the prism of this story, the lens of this story. And I think for that reason, it shows how all of these things, Tristan, to your point about how it's a 2% difference in DNA, but each what it like, it's an exponential leap as you go because you have this moment and then it, it's millions of years later that you have space travel and all of these things. But then it's not so far after that where you transcend into the, the star child 18 months. And, yeah. Right. So you, you basically have these leaps and as each leap happens, it's a shorter duration of time. And that is one of the things I love most about the film is it shows how evolution accelerates as technology accelerates, as our domination of, and I'll give credit to a, a terrific book every, everybody should read called The Moat in God's Eye by Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell, where it talks about how once humanity conquers the stars, once technology hits a certain point, evolution inverts. And we start changing our environment to match us instead of changing to, to match our environment. But this evolution to the star child shows how everything becomes exponentially shorter as it progresses through time. So that's my takeaway. All right. And Tristan, uh, since you weren't able to drink while you were watching this uh, 
part. I mean, I mean, you love these kinds of movies, right? Where it's like all it's in the interpret in the eye of the beholder. What it doesn't matter what it actually means, but whatever you uh, take away from it. <laughs> I really wish I went first because I really like what John had to say. I mean, you could just say ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Many do. I, I would invite you to do that. <laughs> no, oh, oh, John, I love what you had to say. I just wish that they did that on screen. You know, I just, <laughs> I, to me, like what this, what this was to me was just Kubrick jerking off on the walls. It's just, he was just, <laughs> that's not till eyes wide shut. <laughs> just painting the walls. And he's just, he's doing it while staring us in the face. And then he's, he's calling us a dirty girl. That's, that's what's happening. It's a very, very specific picture there. <laughs> I just, oh man, when I watch, every time I watch this, like the, if I actually made it past Jupiter. That's true. You got to get there first. Yeah. Yeah. Once I, if I actually made it past Jupiter and then I got to the infinite, I mean, that, that's when I start to get angry. Because like I I was I was bored for most of it. And then this is when I start to get pissed off <laughs> and like actively annoyed is when I'm watching it. You know, like you see the slit screen, which is cool for like the first 25 seconds. <laughs> and and then you get to the landscapes, the duotone landscapes, and that's when I start digging my nails into my thigh to to stop from screaming. Because if I'm I'm saying to myself like I, if I see one more friggin' duotone landscape of the of the desert that I'm gonna lose my mind and and I just and it just keeps going it just keeps going it just keeps going and then we we see him look at himself and look at there and everything like that and then he, all of a sudden he's a he's an incest baby out in, in space star and child I just, star, oh, star child, child excuse me star child <laughs> that's when I start to feel what I described to you of what of what Kubrick has done to us kind of like what Spielberg and and Lucas did to us with Indiana Jones 4. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's where that's why that's Who what knew? I feel. That's what I think would be Star such Trump a revealing means. movie about <laughs> right? our three that's hosts. Nuts. Okay. 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 Yeah, I, I mean, I, no, and you're right, Tristan, like the third act is uh it's like it's a trip it's like what is going on it is way too much you'll kind of figure it out it's like no just just, i'm here to watch a story tell me a story nope i'm gonna give you pieces of the story and you can draw the collective tissue between them it's like okay then (laughs) do a tonic do a tonic do trying okay but uh yeah no it's honestly yeah once they get to the the third monolith I'm like, okay, I'm good. Like, I've done the do that the the discovery one. That's a great part. I had all that. Do I need? I know what happens. We 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 watch it once, and you don't need to watch it again for the ending. Nothing changes, um, except for inspiring Tron Legacy a little bit, I guess. But uh, but yeah, well, I would also still to you, Tristan. I'd recommend watch to 2010. It is again a very different movie. It's I want a lot to, of yeah. fun. Uh, John Lithgow's amazing. Get some arrow breaking. And uh, yeah, it's we could honestly just throw caution to the wind and just do 
just do 2010 next week. <laughs> I, mean, I we, would not I, be opposed. 2010, I think, is one of those sequels that it both does not need to exist, but at the same time. Oh, is, it doesn't need to exist at all. But, but at the same time is massively underrated. It is a film that so many people sleep on. I saw that as a kid with my dad uh, on VHS. And I have no idea if it holds up. Like, I, honestly, the argument against rewatching it is I have such a fond memory <laughs> of it that I don't want to go near it because if I go back and it sucks, I'm like, I will be despondent. For Let, let's not tempt it. fate then. Let's not yeah. tempt fate. Let's just leave oh, it alone. See, I was going to say go for it. Uh, but, uh, well, we can all choose to watch 2010 on our own dime as it is is a lot of fun. But uh, next week, we'll be entering a new house with the House of Rhino. Oh, wait, what am I talking about? We haven't even got our ratings yet. We That's true. This, I was ready to rate, God, and then we started talking it. about I the third. was so excited <laughs> that you forgot. <laughs> The ratings. I was like, uh, oh, good, good. I, I get a pass. Oh, no. I don't have to talk about it. I want everybody to come after Tristan I'm because sorry, I see Tristan. this one coming. I'm afraid I can't do that. We're going to have to talk about the ratings. Uh, I'm going to go first. I'm giving this a five. I don't care. It's it's something I grew up with. It's a movie. I, yeah, do I see? Is it a perfect movie? I don't say a five has to be a perfect movie. It's a perfect movie to me and what it means to me, the, the visuals, the again a, a story and a film where the director has chosen well i'm just not looking at you tristan i'm just covering up that part of the script but no but no i i really enjoy this movie it's a lot of fun do i watch it every weekend no it's it's really long it's a long long movie but that the second act the um floyd takes a trip to the moon which is how i'm gonna think about it from all time because it's so true but it's fun and it, the man the i really it's a it is a crime to cinema that those models did not survive after this movie. I think they do belong in a museum where uh, they would be appreciated by many. Uh, so I'm going to give this a five. John, we're going to go to you next, so you can say everything that Tristan should say, and he can just say ditto. But where what are you going to give in this recent rewatching of 2001? Uh, how is it softened you a little more every single time? Or how, how, how are we oh, doing? I, I think that uh, now I have arrived at the, the point where I, I own a 4K version of it. The 4K restoration overseen by uh, Christopher Nolan, our greatest active living director. Oh, yeah. Um, we, di- we didn't really talk about that. I got a, I got a hold of the 4K disc um, to watch this. And it's, oh, my gosh. It's immaculate. It yeah, is the, 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 the restoration is oh insane. Gosh. It's absolutely insane. But just like Christopher Nolan, I adore this film, uh, like most right-thinking people I do. And I would say that I would give this a five-star rating, not for any social pressure, because like I said, I hated this the first time I saw it. And the second time I saw it, I was like, it's all right. And the book is good, too. I, I, like, I, I strongly suggest anybody read the book, 2001. Because it is. It's a really good book. It, it is. It's really good. I would go so far as to say it's um, one of the best sci-fi books you will ever read in your life. And it, it's also at this point a wonderful time capsule for what people thought was truly achievable um, in our lifetime. But I, I, I have no choice but to give this a, a five 
I, I think that there is so much about it that is so compelling. And it is definitely in the, I, I think some critic um, described it as part of the new wave school or whatever, but it is, um, it's where David Lynch eventually found himself and then went too far into, uh, are, you know, arguably of holding it for so long that it, it it's like Peter Griffin falling on the pavement and hurting his shin. It's yes. funny at first, yeah. then it's tedious, then it's funny again. And I think that 2001 unlocks the same sort of progression of everything where it's curious, interesting. I'm not sure where it's going. Maybe it's a little boring and then it's interesting again. And I talk about it a lot after every time I see it. So this is a five. All right. Uh, bum, 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 Tristan. What <laughs> is your vote? So I'm not a naive no child when it comes to 2001. Star child. It's called Star Child. <laughs> you know, like as I, ta- as I talked about before, you know, like when you look at how this movie was made, how it was directed, the production design, the special effects, the optical effects, just. It's absolutely mind-blowing what they achieved with this film and with this with this movie. And and it's um this is a fantastic piece of cinema. It's a garbage movie. And so I see this movie very, very similarly to how I look at Metropolis, which is we reviewed on our hundredth episode. And I gave Metropolis a uh, five-star rating because of what it achieved, how it was ahead of its time, and its impact on our culture. And so I'm giving 2001 five stars for that reason. I'm in shock, Tristan, right now. I am (laughs) utterly in shock. I did not pick me up off the surface of the moon right now. (laughs) With the, like, Dr. Floyd right now. Well, that's okay. That's the thing, though. This is like if we were going by my enjoyment level, this would be like right. a one and a half, two. If I'm being generous, I was gonna say on a cinematic level, it's got to be at least a two. But no, no, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. Like, though, Tristan. I, I know it, it probably people, you know, longtime listeners are probably thinking I'm punking out. But honestly, like with just like with with the models, with the the matte paintings, like with the with the suits, with the acting, with the world building, with the cinematography, just it, it, it's all so amazing. But the story is just so lackluster. It's just not there. And, and like Arthur C. Clarke himself said like, Oh, if you walk away understanding everything about 2001, we didn't do our jobs right. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's not you. a great way to frame a film. We purposely don't want our audience to understand what's going on. Like, yeah, no. exactly. You know, like that kind of stuff pisses me off. Um, like I love stuff that makes you think. I love stuff that's like out there or that's open to interpretation to a point. And this is past my breaking point. But when you look at the cultural impact and what this movie has achieved and how it achieved it, this is a five-star film. But it is not something that I'm ever going to watch again now that I've podcasted about it. No, that's a that's a really good point, Tristan. I, I remember, again, when I was taking film and and living with filmmakers always felt that in a way 
you almost need like three categories to rate a film. You need like enjoyment, like technical aspect, and then like maybe a third one. Like the fact that we try to distill a rating of a film to a single scale, it's almost impossible because, and that's why it changes all the time. Like I was feeling, you know, you know, melancholy today. And then I watched this movie and it totally changed the way I perceived it. Like it, it's so fluid, but yeah, I'll, it, that's awesome to hear. You recognize the technical achievements of two. I am very surprised. I did not hear think five was going to come out of your mouth today, but that is uh, I'm glad that we all, it's a five-star film. That means everybody should go watch this movie right now. Okay. Maybe not, but uh, watch 2010, but next week, here on House Lights, we are going to go into the House of Reiner with Rob Reiner of the 1980s, starting with this is Spinal Tap. Take it to 11. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.